We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Problems for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or you just want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. And this is Fight Study. This episode was produced by S.H., M. Shelton, and New Guy. This is Fight Study, where we'll be discussing UFC 279. And to help us explain all of the chaos, we have Ben Duffy. Ben, since this is your first time on the show, can you introduce yourself? Of course. Uh, And thanks for having me on. I'm Ben Duffy. I'm currently senior editor at SureDog.com. That's actually the only outlet I've worked for professionally. I've been there for almost five years now. I've been there as my full-time occupation for a little over two. I guess, as far as how I got into combat sports, I was a wrestler in high school. I was a fan of amateur wrestling. So I started paying attention to mixed martial arts once wrestlers I was a fan of started getting pulled into the sport. People like Mark Coleman... Dan Severn, Tom Erickson. I watched it a few times in the 90s. I either the product wasn't ready for me or I wasn't ready for the product. Uh, But I got into it for good around 2003 or so. I think uh, UFC 47 was the first pay-per-view I bought with my own money. I've been hooked ever since. Uh, Just been a huge fan. And because I was a writer in my uh, professional life, when an opportunity cropped up to cross over into writing about a sport that I loved very much, I I took it. And here we are. How did you break into MMA writing, especially as a profession? I had been a reader of SureDog since the early 2000s, as well as the other sites that were around at the time. You know, uh, MMA Junkie was around by then. Uh, I was a regular listener and caller on their radio programs. And around 2018, they put out a call for essentially you know volunteer writers who wanted to get into MMA writing uh, at that time and really even up to now anyone who writes at Sherdog probably started as a volunteer and then joined as paid staff just kind of once they established themselves they quickly realized that I was actually a professional copy editor and and writer by trade and so uh, they offered me a, a position pretty quickly and yeah, I ended up where I am now, where I, I do podcasts for SureDog. I do a good amount of my own writing still, and then uh, a lot of the copy editing and front page publishing. And to give listeners some context, especially if they're young, SureDog is probably the oldest active MMA news outlet left, right? It is It is the oldest. Uh, it started in 1997 as Jeff Sherwood's photo blog basically for central california and asian mma events that he photographed himself then grew into a news site 
the fight database. And yes, at this point, the site and the fight database are the oldest continuously operating of their kind uh, in the sport. One thing I miss about the old days is how, because I guess MMA wasn't a solidified sport yet, there was still kind of like this crossover between pro wrestling, especially Japanese pro wrestling and MMA. So on SureDog and a lot of the old sites back then, there was kind of this fluidity where you talked about wrestling, especially New Japan and some MMA, whereas now it's like so divided. Like you just talk about MMA now on MMA outlets. You don't talk about pro wrestling and you're not even supposed to kind of mention how they used to overlap or be the same thing because now that this is a legitimate sport, you're not supposed to mention that history anymore. Oh, that's absolutely true. And I remember those days very well. And it was an always it was always an uncomfortable, uh, almost kissing cousins relationship between the two. And MMA fans were uncomfortable with the idea that, well, yes, early Japanese MMA, a lot of it was pro wrestlers trying to prove that they were actually the toughest guys in the world. There were a number of worked matches that went on even in early pride to, to try and uh, carry that narrative. And yeah, that makes us uncomfortable now if we're like, well, no, we're, we're a legitimate sport. We're not that <laughs> fake pro wrestling stuff, but we absolutely were. I wanted to bring that up also because of some of the stuff we'll be talking about later and this granular murky divide that still exists between pro wrestling and <laughs> MMA, where I just say the UFC is a pro wrestling company that does shoots. That's, the only way that I could think about the UFC that makes sense and everything they do is consistent. Otherwise, a lot of things are inconsistent. Oh, I love that you mentioned that. And I think I saw you tweet something to that effect last night, which last night as we speak now was UFC uh, 279 fight night. You mentioned that the UFC is basically a pro wrestling company that does shoots. And I thought that was that was brilliant. It actually harked back to when uh, Vince McMahon said that the UFC would would never prosper because they couldn't control their outcomes. And it was almost as though the UFC said, well, you know, watch me hold my beer. And here we are, <laughs> I think, 15 years later from that. And, you know, damned if they aren't trying their hardest. And from what I understand, Vince McMahon and Dana White, since those early days, have become close and become friends. And Dana often reaches out to Vince McMahon. I don't know about it anymore, but for a long time was reaching out to him about advice, about production and making a good pay-per-view and not just production as far as like the live show itself, but how to produce for TV and things like that. So a lot of that Vince McMahonness became explicitly a part of UFC. Now that you mentioned that, that makes perfect sense. But if they were going to do that, I sure wish they would bring back the ramps and the fireworks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I like about one is their entrances, which reminds me a lot of that. Ab absolutely. And even when Bellator and Ryzen do their shared New Year's Eve events, it's just so great to see Bellator fighters that clearly grew up loving Japanese MMA just marking out at their own walkouts. I remember Lorenz <laughs> Larkin, like looking back at his own Jumbotron and practically getting tears in his eyes. Another thing you mentioned is you're no longer just a writer or podcaster for Sure Dog. You're an editor. What does being an editor mean? Well, uh, First and foremost, I'm a copy editor in the most literal sense. We have a couple dozen contributors who come from all over the world. We are an English language outlet. English is not all of their first language. So the first thing for me to do is just make sure that the language has its shoes tied and its zipper up before it goes out the door. 
uh, we write to AP style. So there's also a question of style in addition to simple grammar and spelling and stuff like that. I, because I'm also a graphic designer, I do the display images for most of the things that I publish for the site. So yeah, anything that you read, if you read Sheridog or if you go look at the front page right now, it'll have an author byline, but it went through an editor before it got out the door. So if you see a typo or a spelling error or some formatting glitch, that's my fault, not the author's. <laughs> now, if you spend some time on MMA Twitter, like we both do, nowadays, I think especially because of YouTube, everybody's an expert on MMA, everybody's an analyst, everybody has opinions. And by everybody, I mean mostly young men. <laughs> How often do you get submissions or inquiries? Frequently. Frequently. Uh, occasionally, Sherdog will put out the call for volunteers on, you know, on the front page. Say, we're, we're looking for writers. If you're looking to get into the industry, here's, here's a chance. But I, I'll get hit up offline. My DMs are always open. And it's mostly abuse about fight predictions or <laughs> I, I made, but I do occasionally get questions just from people asking, you know, how could I write for Sherdog or how could I get into this? How could I get into podcasting? Because I, I do a good amount of podcasting for Sherdog as well. I do their UFC preview and recap shows. So people that might hear me on there ask how they can get into that. Uh, and I'm always happy to help however I can. So I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to write about MMA. And then when they actually sit down and try to do it, they're like, okay, I am a consumer of MMA articles. I'm watching MMA all the time. So despite consuming it a lot, when it comes down to writing, they're like, what am I supposed to write? <laughs> Here's something I'm interested in. What does an MMA article entail? So what is writing an MMA article all about? I think even in 2022, and certainly it's a different industry now than it was in 2002 or even, you know, 2008, a couple of years after the tough revolution, there's still room for specialists. If you're interested in getting into writing or talking about MMA, if you have a realm of particular interest, the best thing you can possibly do is get into writing or talking about that. Like if you're really into uh, Asian MMA, for, for example, where there's a richer investment in the lower weight women's divisions or something like that, if you can become recognized as an expert on that, you have almost a golden ticket to, uh, to have interest in your product and maybe to get your foot in the door at, at a bigger outlet. If what you're mostly interested in is the biggest events, you know, if, if you just care about the biggest UFC pay-per-views and that's what you kind of want to sound off on, then you're, you're best off being able to speak about it on a deeper level than just uh, a short reaction. Because everybody's got that. You, you watch Twitter on, on any fight night and hot takes are pretty easy. Uh, the, the kind of quality that that helps if you want to, to do this professionally you don't have to be an x's and o's analyst but at least knowing enough backstory and context and narrative to explain how the fighters got to this point like the two guys that are walking into the cage or the two women who are walking into the the cage for the main event like what route they got to get here what the implications are if you can speak about it or write about it on deeper than a surface level that'll help you stand out from the well, frankly, thousands of other people who want to do it. 
UFC 279 was originally supposed to be headlined by Aljamain Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw. Then that got moved. Then we had Nathan Diaz versus Hamzat Chimaev. Then that fight got scrapped because Chimaev was too overweight. And apparently UFC doctors told Chimaev to stop cutting weight well ahead of the weigh-ins. So why did they do the weigh-ins in the first place then? I think they probably wanted to document what he actually weighed on weigh-in morning. Actually, let me back up a moment. He had to weigh in even if they were going to have him fight at 180 pounds against someone else. But I think they had him come out and weigh in when he did to document what he weighed at that time so that it did have a little bit more of a veneer of transparency. So it didn't just seem like a... (laughs) Like, well, it didn't seem like such a a backroom deal where, no, he's not going to weigh in at all at the same time as these other guys were going to change all these lineups behind the scenes. You know, they had him come out. They had him weigh in at 176 and a half or whatever it was that he weighed in at uh, and then spent the next few hours kind of shuffling things, presumably uh, negotiating with the six fighters at the top of the card and then came out with the rejiggered lineup. And I get they replaced the fight, but if you're going to have him weigh in and officially miss weight, and he was weighing in, I believe, for the main event still, why didn't they find him? That's a good question. I, I mean, if if the Diaz and Shamaya fight had gone on, if Diaz had agreed to it, if the Nevada State Athletic Commission had agreed to sanction it, I imagine he would have been fined 30% of his purse. but. I guess they considered Shamaya versus Holland a whole different matchup. He didn't get fined because he didn't miss his contracted weight to fight Holland. And because purses are not disclosed in Nevada, they could say they fined him 30%. They could <laughs> say they gave Holland half his purse. They could really say pretty much whatever they wanted. Uh, I, I almost wish this card had taken place in California so we could know exactly what these guys were getting paid. I guess what gives me pause is that if you miss weight, and they even scrapped the fight, don't they sometimes still find you anyway, even though that fight isn't happening, right? So it wasn't just the shuffling. For it to get shuffled, one fight had to get canceled, and then a new fight had to get rebooked. Those fines aren't mandated. In in this case, you know, if it had been a fine, it would have been a percentage of Shamayev's purse given to Diaz as a penalty slash compensation for Diaz accepting the fight. Again, because the UFC basically framed this as two new matchups being made at the 11th hour. I don't think any official fine had to be given. Like there's, there's no hard and fast rule about that. It's, it's more of a guideline that the Nevada athletic commission sets. And as is the case across the sport, at least in North America, most other commissions kind of follow their example. So a lot of MMA seems like guidelines than hard and fast rules, like in basketball or other professional sports. Sure, because other professional sports aren't uh, aren't clown shoes like MMA is. <laughs> now, this sort of weight mishap was never supposed to happen again because after UFC 209, where Habib Nurmagomedov had a bad weight cut against Tony Ferguson, which scrapped that fight, didn't the UFC say they would monitor main event fighter weights and have backup plans? They certainly did. <laughs> and I think there there was a tacit backup plan in place here in having the three top fights on this card all 
at the same weight class or at least featuring fighters who habitually fight at the same weight class. I, I think this was all in place sort of as a backup or, or so that there would be contingencies uh, available without coming right out and saying, yes, we're terrified that Chemaev is going to blow weight. <laughs> now, while the weight was way off target, you had Chemaev and Kevin Holland get into a backstage scuffle. Can you tell us about what happened there? The video is a short snippet. It's the the thing I saw was certainly 30 to 45 seconds at the most. And all it was is Shamayev and his entourage and Kevin Holland and his entourage seeming to pass each other in one of the backstage tech areas and yell some stuff at each other about being scared. And <laughs> it's it's the most silly performative <laughs> MMA tough guy stuff ever. It's it's okay. ridiculous. And I don't know I don't know why they bothered to film this because it was in such a place and such a situation that I'm not saying it was staged as in they gave each guy a script and then said cut and you know did the little uh the little board chop like they were filming a movie, but for them even to have cameras there, it's kind of like when Conor McGregor in Brooklyn went running through the the garage with the loading dolly. They clearly knew something was going to happen that was going to be of some promotional value to them to even have cameras there. And I think they just filmed this, again, extremely silly and brief <laughs> confrontation so that they could cast Shamaya versus Holland as more of a grudge match than an emergency backup plan. So then we got confirmation that Shimaev was facing Holland. Now, during the same weekend, AEW also had their own backroom scuffles. <laughs> and it felt like this uncanny valley where I felt like pro wrestling ended up with unexpected shoots where people were like, oh shit, this is real. And UFC <laughs> had what felt like works where people were like, is this fake, right? And UFC is all about, it's as real as it gets, but Going back to even some of the things you mentioned, I feel like they announced it to the public that these were emergency matches they were making, but I feel like they may have had at least a day or two head start ahead of the public in trying to wrangle something up and that they already knew the weight was probably going to get missed. I completely agree. Uh, well, and you mentioned that Dana White, you know, may have been cribbing some notes from uh, Vince McMahon in more recent years. And in terms of taking elements that are beyond your control, taking the the natural chaos of a sport like MMA and trying to make it fit into some comprehensible narrative, this was just an, a natural move to, to be able to film that little backstage scuffle and then be able to call Shamaya versus Holland a grudge match, which <laughs> the UFC announcer booth relentlessly did throughout the night. They called it a grudge match basically every time they mentioned the fight, even though there doesn't seem to be much grudge here. And Holland had been openly campaigning to fight Shemaev since 2020. Uh, you know, they were able, again, they were able to, to make an unforeseeable, well, not completely unforeseeable, but, you know, an unexpected uh, happenstance fit into a, an overall narrative. So then in an inverse of UFC 209, Ferguson was back in the main event against the 209's Nate Diaz. and. Jing Liang Lee was fighting Daniel Rodriguez with a near 10-pound weight disadvantage. 
then Nate Diaz caught Tony Ferguson with a choke at 209 of the fourth round. What a wild fucking card. Unbelievable. Holland and Diaz did confirm they got pay bumps. So I assume this also applies to everyone else. I don't know if this includes Chimaev, however. Have you heard anything about this? If Chimaev was one of the people that got a pay bump for being the one to cause things to get shuffled? Wouldn't that be funny, right? Instead of getting fined, he gets a pay bump. It it wouldn't surprise me. I would imagine that at the very least, all five of the other fighters involved in this game of musical chairs uh, got some sort of compensation. And it wouldn't surprise me too much if Shemaev did as well. I mean, I would hope not. I would hope the UFC would not be reinforcing this behavior because not only did he miss weight, but for anybody who saw the official or the... Uh, the ceremonial weigh-ins? Thank you, ceremonial. Why can I not remember my words? <laughs> yes, the the official or the ceremonial weigh-ins, he was beyond insouciant about this. He was defiant. You know, he was flipping the bird. It, even after the fight, he was like, I don't care about weight, and then threatened to kill everybody. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would hope the UFC would not be financially uh, encouraging him to, to do that in the future. But the funny thing is that Dana White afterwards claimed that no fighter had received additional money for doing this. Oh. Which it seems patently absurd considering that Kevin Holland was doing a dance in one of the back hallways uh, and singing and celebrating about having gotten extra money to take this fight. Uh, it seems to run directly contrary to what his own fighters were saying. So make of that what you will, but I definitely tend to believe the fighters in this case. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like giving Johnny Walker a fight bonus and then kicking him out with no shoes and no clothes and not even letting the man shower during the main event. So, you know, pro wrestling, right? That's the only way to make this all consistent. It was so strange. <laughs> Maybe they were like, we don't want you to pirate the main event and watch it for free. You need to get out of here. <laughs> Pirating meaning just like standing there and watching for free. They're like, you even as a fighter can't watch this for free. Nope, you can go and sit in the upper bowl. <laughs> but nope, they, they kicked him out barefoot. <laughs> now, what do you make of this whole fiasco? Everything from the lead up to just how everything went to all these stories about what the promoters said, what the fighters said. Uh, fiasco is the perfect word to encapsulate it. It was a mess. It was definitely exciting and interesting in real time to watch it unfold. I, I'm a night shift person. So I woke up at about three in the afternoon, my time on Friday, jumped into the Sherdog staff Slack chat and just caught up on what had been going on. And I was like, what the hell happened to this card? Because, you know, all, all the weight misses had already happened. And that includes, of course, not only Shemaev, but like three other fighters on the card. And so for me to watch it all unfold in real time in the backroom negotiations, it was definitely exciting in a car crash kind of way. But it doesn't save the card. Like, sure, it was exciting. And we got some really weird fights out of it. We got. <laughs> but in the end, we ended up with a $75 pay-per-view card that had next to no divisional relevance. <laughs> and if I just wanted to see wild fights with people who had not been preparing to fight one another and a bunch of weird finishes... I could go watch World Star Hip Hop or, or Break.com. <laughs> like all those fights in the knockout. Uh, for, for 75 bucks, I expect to see the best fighters in the world. 
hopefully fighting at their best. And we did not get that. It's a fiasco. They were all fighting for street beef titles. Oh, absolutely. We're, I mean, we have somebody in Diaz who literally created a street beef title out of thin air and managed to will himself into headlining a show at Madison Square Garden against Jorge Masvidal for it. That's That was the feel of this whole card. <laughs> with The Rock again, too, just like last time. Yes, with The Rock. And Nate Diaz just dunking on the man's <laughs> shoes. It was so funny. <laughs> Now, I already gave away how the main event ended with Nathan Diaz versus Tony Ferguson. But let me first state how bad this card was to have their backup card be better than their original card. But Ben, tell us what you thought about the original matchmaking between Nathan Diaz versus Hamza Chimaev. Did you think it was punitive? Yes, it was absolutely punitive. And not necessarily a personal, personally punitive sense, although when when a, a company is a cult of personality, kind of like the UFC definitely reflects Dana White's personality and preferences and grudges from the top down. It, it's always a little of both, but I don't think it was a purely personally punitive thing so much as the UFC's well-established practice of scuffing up star fighters on their way out the door. You think of Tito Ortiz being made to fight Lyoto Machida in his last fight under contract, where not only are you going to lose, but you're probably going to lose terribly or, or look terrible in losing because that was back when just nobody could hit Machida cleanly. And, you know, that was or sending Cajun Johnson, who, you know, famously advocated for fighters to unionize. They sent him out the door with back to back fights, I think, against Rustam Habilov and Islam Makachev. <laughs> just trying again, just trying to devalue him on the way out the door. This may have been the most egregious example of that that I can remember to walk Diaz in against Shemaev, who ranged from like a minus 1,000 to minus 1,600 favorites, just was twice his size, just an absolutely brutal matchup. Yeah, it, it felt punitive slash the UFC protecting its, yeah, protecting its interests. And then seeing what Shemaev did to Holland, if that original fight had happened, it would have been criminal. Yes, it would have been, it would have been, Worse than what Shemayev did to Holland. And that's saying something, considering that Holland was fighting for his life the entire time and didn't <laughs> land a single strike. But it would have been worse. Now, what did you think when this new fight was announced between Nathan Diaz and Tony Ferguson? Did you feel like, oh, this is a pick and fight. This is much more appropriate. I did think it was much more appropriate. I thought it was more competitive. I, th I thought it would have been a better fight you know, a, a better fight to make in the first place, at least from a fan's perspective. And I, I thought of it as close to a pick'em, and I actually favored Ferguson going into it. I was, I was wrong on this one. I, I had a pretty good night of of picking fights overall at two seventy nine. This was not one of the ones I got right. Another coincidence about this fight, which makes it even more eerie, is they're both tough winners. So you had all these weird things happening, right? And so being tough winners, then you're like, they should have fought a while ago. When you finally get that fight that should have happened a long time ago, it's never as good as it should have been, right? Yeah. And this, this show had three tough winners, all fighting outside of the weight class that they won the show at. That's, that's a record. That's a first. <laughs> it had those two and Macy Chasson. Actually, uh, Tony Ferguson won at, 170 and then he dropped to 155 so oh you're right 
You're right. Absolutely. No, thank you. Now you need to hire me a shitter dog. I, absolutely. <laughs> and I don't know if this fight for Chasson should technically count as featherweight. So maybe they, they all just ate their way in, into making me a liar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what were your impressions of the fight and how did both fighters look to you? I, I don't mean this to be mean. I, I always try to be measured in speaking negatively about fighters and their performances. But I thought Nate Diaz looked terrible and I thought Tony Ferguson looked worse. <laughs> I expected Ferguson to win this fight based on how he looked in the Michael Chandler fight, which was not that long ago. And until he got knocked out, he looked sensational. He looked better than he had at any point during his losing streak leading up to then. He looked fast. He looked precise. He beat Chandler, who I still think is a top five talent or close to it. He beat him for the first round. And then he walked into a knockout of the year. But then I thought, okay, that version of Tony Ferguson should should have enough to beat Nate Diaz. And it simply wasn't the case. It, if Diaz were to win this fight, I assumed it would be a classic Diaz fight where Ferguson would beat him up for two or three rounds, maybe start to get tired, as hard as that is to picture about Tony Ferguson, and Diaz would start to win the war of attrition, start rolling downhill on him, and maybe grab a submission in the fourth round but after having lost the first three. Instead, I thought Diaz won the first three rounds. And for Diaz to be winning the striking exchanges right from the beginning against Tony Ferguson was shocking to me. I'm trying to remember the last time Diaz came out and just was outstriking his opponent immediately because he started slapping around McGregor in their fight after McGregor got tired. He hurt uh, Leon Edwards late, but Edwards had won just about everything up until then. But on Saturday night, Ferguson just looked so slow and so awkward right from the beginning. And Diaz, who was not an especially fast starter himself, was he was one step ahead the whole time. Uh, it was it was a miserable looking performance from Tony Ferguson. Do you think Diaz considered walking away from the fight at one point because it was his last? Because it did look like the referee was trying to talk Diaz into continuing to fight. I saw that and. At the time, I kind of chalked it up to the very typical Diaz brothers showmanship where if a fight isn't going the way they want a fight to go, if it's not turning into a Diaz brothers fight, both he and his brother Nick are not above kind of starting to, to clown around a little bit or look as though they've checked out mentally. I, I think back to Nick Diaz, like lying and lounging on the floor in the middle of the octagon against Anderson Silva. Uh, you know, and here where where Nate was kind of leaning against the fence and looking like he was about to take a smoke break, I, I chalk it up to that. I, I don't think he was considering quitting. Period. I think he was just trying to maybe draw Ferguson out into fighting incautiously. I think he was trying to signal to the crowd that hey, if this fight is boring, it ain't my fault, which is a very Diaz brothers thing to do. I actually think those antics during the fight worked to his advantage because it got Ferguson to stop chasing and kicking him. Ferguson was like landing those leg kicks. And then all of a sudden Ferguson was like, what was, what's going on? And <laughs> that happened not just once in the fight, but throughout the fight. And so that really seemed to confuse Ferguson, which is interesting, right? Because Ferguson is usually the one confusing his opponents, but that really was something that Tony didn't seem to know how to deal with. And actually throughout the whole fight, 
Ferguson looked really awkward to me and he looked off balance. He didn't seem as durable as he used to be. You know, Diaz is the one who's supposed to be losing initially. Diaz is the one who's supposed to be the one who's easier to cut up. But this time it was Ferguson who was drenched in blood. Ferguson who was losing the initial rounds. Ferguson's wrestling and takedowns were also slow and telegraphed. And he kept running into the cage, which is not a good sign in UFC because we've seen so many knockouts against the cage. You know, he used to be smooth, but now he's clunky. He's way too hittable. To your point about how he looked against Chandler, I don't know what happened to that guy. And I wonder if that kick really did alter Ferguson, who was on his way downhill anyway. And now he just, you know, it's awkward to watch him. It's awkward at best. It's uncomfortable at worst. And I completely agree. Uh, You mentioned off the top there that Diaz's antics actually seem to work on Ferguson. I completely agree. And for those mind games to still be working on UFC opponents in 2022, I've got to say it was a little surprising. And I also agree, and I came to the same conclusion that each of them had taken a page out of the other's playbook. Diaz was throwing more kicks than he had in a long time in one of his fights, and Ferguson was bleeding all over the place within 60 <laughs> seconds. You know, that's, that's usually that that's you know that's the other guy's role. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, and I I don't know if we'll, we'll get to this at some point, but I'm I'm good with with Tony Ferguson. I I'd be okay if I didn't see the guy fight again. And I speak as someone who is extremely reluctant to say a fighter should retire. But like I, I, I don't need any more because I am thinking now not only of what Shemaya would have done to Diaz, but how badly Lee Jing Leong would have torn up Tony Ferguson on Saturday. To your point, Ferguson just had his fifth loss. Just like you, I try to be measured. I normally try to avoid saying which fighters need to retire since it's their choice. But what gave me the most pause was how Ferguson reacts to getting hit now. There's a certain way fighters who've taken too many punches to the head, react to getting hit. And I can't describe it, but Ferguson has it. You know, it's like the old Supreme Court ruling where you know it when you see it. (laughs) And it's like, they go blank for a second. For a second, they don't know where they are. They don't know what's happening. It's like BJ Penn's normal facial expression now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he he was there. Um, yeah, he was there, but he wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, he he was there. He he wasn't there. Half of them was still back in Hawaii helping announce Ryzen's, uh, you know, Hawaii show next year. Um, I agree. And with Ferguson, yeah, the the look of a fighter that's taken some t- taken taken some brain damage from repeated trauma. I I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it because I remember Chuck Liddell. Where all of a sudden, even glancing blows do leave him looking like for a split second he doesn't know where he is. And punches he would have shrugged off in his prime all of a sudden knock him out, like out, smelling salts, out cold. And Ferguson looks to be reaching that. He looks to be reaching that phase. And it's it's unsurprising. He's 38. He's had a ton of fights. And even at his best, even when he was one of the top pound for pound fighters in the sport and you know, the number one, a best lightweight in the world, his fight style always saw him get hit a lot. He always took a a lot of clean shots during his fights. He, he counted on 
his chin and his cardio and his pace to wear down his opponents and leave him the last man standing. And it was brilliant and it made him an incredible fighter to watch, but it was never a fight style built for the long haul. And I think we're seeing the end, the end game, the, the end results of that now. What do you think is next for Diaz? He was surprisingly conciliatory on the mic after his win. I, we're talking about somebody in Nate Diaz who he's one of the most popular and beloved fighters in MMA history. And it's never been about being unbeatable. You know, he's barely above 500 in the UFC. You know, he's, you know, he made his way to a, a title shot, but he, he's never been a perpetual title contender. He's beloved because his fights are almost always exciting. And because he's just so raw and real, he's, He's never, he's never pussyfooted around the, the UFC. You know, he's fought like eight times in the last nine years. Just comes and goes as he pleases. He needs the UFC less than it needs him, and because of that, he's always just kind of been off the cuff about how he feels. Like usually, you, you feel as though you're getting a pretty unfiltered uh, look into into Nate Diaz's head when he speaks. And so, if if he was pissed off last night and he was done with the UFC forever. I don't think he would have been afraid to say that at all. I mean, he spent all of Thursday and Friday openly mocking the rocks shoes on camera to the point that they couldn't use any of his interview clips. Uh, so for him to be conciliatory and thank the UFC and thank Dana White and thank Hunter Campbell, which that that's especially telling because Hunter Campbell, the UFC's, I think he's now their COO started out as just an attorney, but now he's kind of their, contract hatchet man for him to be conciliatory with the guy that basically any future dealings with the UFC would have to go through mm -hmm. indicated to me that he is open to signing a new contract. He's, you know, he, he is unveiling his own fight promotion. We'll, we'll see how that one goes. You know, his brother's fight promotion, you know, didn't go much of anywhere, but I would have given it 90, 10 that he's gone from the UFC and I'm closer to 50-50 after that interview. I could see the UFC signing him. They're going to be reluctant to let him leave with his stock on the uptick. You know, whatever value he had to PFL, Bellator, one championship, to professional boxing, whether it's uh, just, you know, freak show fights against YouTubers or, or some actual boxing, it's all up after his performance on Saturday. So if the UFC can give him another, you know, two or four fight deal and hope that he leaves on a loss, I think they'll do that. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw, Deep Space Nine, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions, like you're hearing now, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, or show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Now let's talk about Shimaev beating Holland by submission in the first round. Just an FYI, they both weighed around the same weight, and this was supposed to be five rounds, but ended up being less than a round as Shimaev choked Holland out with a darse. What did you think of their performance? 
it's going to sound strange to say this about a guy that didn't land a single strike and got choked out in less than two and a half minutes. But I thought Holland fought close to a perfect fight. <laughs> he, he, he did pretty much the best thing he could do at every moment of the fight to not get finished in the moment, to not take irrecoverable damage in the moment and give himself a chance to escape and, and maybe find some way to hurt Chimaev. He was just overwhelmed. It was a miserable style matchup for him against a guy that on skill and talent seems to be one of the best fighters on the planet. Uh, Holland's problem at 185 pounds came when he ran into wrestlers who could take him down and control him. He's a, a tall, skinny guy who wants to strike at range. And so when he ran into the Derek Brunson's and Marvin Vittori's of the world, he hit a ceiling and he decided that by dropping to 170 pounds, he could probably maximize his chances of fighting for a title. So <laughs> for, for him, with that plan in mind, to have to fight Hamzat Shemaev at 180 pounds was just absolutely miserable because, well, I mean, Shemaev is a guy that may well be middleweight in his next fight for all we know, but has fought back and forth at middleweight and welterweight and is an incredible wrestler. I mean, we have all the training camp film of him throwing Jack Hermanson around, who is a good and good-sized uh, middleweight. There was never any question that he was going to be able to take Holland down. He tried to do so immediately. I did love that. I, I loved that a, a fighter who knew he was by far the superior wrestler and knew that wrestling gave him the best chance of winning with the least risk to himself, didn't monkey around on the feet for two minutes. He took Holland down immediately, which I thought was brilliant. And then Holland did the best that he could do. He, he never conceded the position. He immediately just went into this really enjoyable series of, you know, Granby rolls and escapes and switches, just never letting his shoulders and ass be put on, uh, on the mat, constantly trying uh, to keep things moving. One, so that Shemaev couldn't just mash him against the side of the cage, get a leg ride and the, well, I guess it would be Chechen handcuff, not Dagestani in this case. Uh, and then just go to work. Holland tried to keep things moving, figuring that in a scramble, he would be able to escape or who knows, you know, maybe even reverse. Like he really did a, a great job of just surviving as best he could for as long as he could against a much, much better opponent and terrible stylistic matchup. Chimaev is one of the best wrestler grapplers in the UFC up there with Islam Makachev. But he still showed, in my opinion, the same flaw he did against Gilbert Burns, which is an inability to pace. And that inability to pace, that urgency, nearly cost him the fight against Burns. Let's also not forget Chimaev had long COVID, which nearly had him retiring. Imagine Chimaev retiring after that speech. We see what kind of person he is, right? So it had to have been that bad for him to consider it. So that pace plus any permanent long-term damage could definitely be an issue in his future fights. Holland and Chimaev to me seem like opposites in that Holland can get too lackadaisical sometimes and Chimaev too urgent. I, I like that you pointed that out, that it, it was a problem in the Burns fight that he did slow down a bit. And here, yes, he fought Holland, just came out like a house on fire. And if Holland had made it to the end of the first round and they started again fresh on their feet at the beginning of the second, I think the fight would have all of a sudden become a whole lot more interesting. Uh, I, I still would have favored Shemaev, but with each passing minute, it was 
going to get more and more perilous. And if, for example, they match Shemaev coming up, you know, next against someone like Colby Covington, who, yeah, he's going to be much smaller and not as good a striker, but maybe the best cardio in the game. Like that all of a sudden is a, a huge trap fight for someone like Shemaev that's used to putting everyone away in such short order. And I think that fight would tell us a lot more than this fight did. Oh, absolutely. This fight, this fight told it, I, I think taught us almost nothing. <laughs> Do you think this fight ended up raising Gilbert Burns' stock because now we see what Shemaev does to everyone else? I think so. I think Burns' performance against Shemaev is going to age really well as Shemaev just blows through whoever is put in front of him at 170 or 185 for the foreseeable future. I think Burns actually hurting Shemaev, you know, and maybe taking a round off him is going to look really, really good. I think also people think of Burns as this submission guy who is a heavy-handed puncher brawler. But now, watching this fight really made me appreciate that, no, Burns has a lot of fight IQ. And Burns is actually pretty good at wrestling. And I think about just how they both started out. Holland came out really light on his feet, bouncing around. And when you're bouncing straight up and down, like initially when he came out, he basically bounced up in the air. What happens if your feet are really wide, right? And you jump up in the air, even if your feet start out wide, what happens in the air? Your feet come together. And also what happens? Your center of gravity goes up, right? So it made it so much easier for Chimaev to take him down. Whereas Burns came out and he was like in a long, squatty stance, like really dropping his weight to make it harder for him to be picked up. And even when they did wrestle engage, those moments where Holland was getting beat by Burns, whether it was pummeling or it was positioning, Burns was still not the superior, but Burns was keeping up with Chimaev through a lot of that fight. And so you see how smart Burns is actually, and you see how good his wrestling defense is. And I think those are qualities we underappreciated about him until we saw what something else could look like with another very good fighter. I agree. Uh, Burns, I I always was impressed by his offensive wrestling. I always liked that he was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy who nonetheless had a takedown game that was more like an American wrestler. Like Because the, the stereotype of Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, of course, is that they're incredible on the ground, but a lot of them have trouble getting the fight there on their own terms. And you end up with you know guys like pulling guard or, or rolling for low percentage leg locks. And Gilbert Burns was never one of those guys. He'd shoot a single or double leg from outside, you know, and like shoot through the hips like a, a like a, an amateur wrestler. I came away from the Shamaya of Burns fight very impressed with his defensive wrestling, you know, as, as you mentioned. Really good stuff. And you're right that he came out looking like a guy that expected to be in a wrestling-heavy matchup where Holland came out bouncing on his feet, you know, throwing his hand up for the uh, for the glove tap, which Shamayev ducked under. And yeah, you know, you can say that that's unsporting, but really, <laughs> that's probably the closest Holland came to landing a strike during the fight. So I, I don't blame <laughs> him for throwing it up there. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if that was a glove tap because remember when they were announcing the fight, both sides had to have security keeping them apart, right? And then they kind of like this begrudging, you know, fist bump right there. And I was like, that's it. You're, like, you're not going to do another fist bump, right? And even if you do, you do it like Daniel Rodriguez and Jing Liang Li did, where they came out both with their hands out saying, we're going to walk across and touch fists. Yes. The way 
Holland did it. And knowing Holland's personality, it even seemed like one of those Holland fake outs where I'm just going to do this thing to mess with you, right? Even during those scrambles that you talked about, I saw Holland talking to Chmaev, asking him why he's going so fast and going so hard. <laughs> what a treasure. As far as personality, Chimaev looked like a piece of shit throughout this whole fiasco, but I understand why he did what he did. I wouldn't have believed that glove touch from Holland anyway. And also, I think that just puts Holland into his type of like game, into his like, I'm going to be your friend during the fight kind of thing, which you don't want to let him get into that groove, right? So there's a lot of things to hold against Chimaev that I don't hold against him. No, I, I don't either. Like, like, even if I thought it was an exceedingly unsporting thing he had done, and I don't, I think the glove tap is kind of silly and overrated. I, I, I almost wish fighters wouldn't do it, <laughs> but it would have it would have paled in comparison to his antics the rest of the week, mostly just being so defiant about the weight miss and so insouciant about what it did to the other fighters on the card. So, yeah, I don't really care much about the glove tap at all. And even so, at worst, if he had touched gloves, it would have added about five seconds to that fight. Now let's talk about Lee versus Rodriguez with Rodriguez winning a split decision. Let me start by saying they did Lee the dirtiest in this whole fiasco. He had basically a guaranteed win with Ferguson, possibly a performance bonus, to end up fighting someone at least 10 pounds heavier than he is. Then he lost a fight that I thought he had won. But Ben, as someone who covers this sport for a living, what did you think about the judging? And for listeners, what is the judging criteria? Well, it's a good time to talk to me about this because... Actually, just three weeks ago, I took the Association of Boxing Commission's uh, certification courses on MMA judging and refereeing. It was a two-day event in Austin, which is just a couple hours drive away from me. Uh, I had a great time. The classes were both taught by Kevin McDonald, that, you know, probably a familiar name to any of your listeners that watch a lot of, you know, top-level MMA. But yeah, I was there with uh, a bunch of referees that you'd recognize and judges that you'd, you'd recognize and just taking the course on the criteria for MMA judging, the procedures for refereeing, and any updates to the rules. With that said, I scored this fight for Lee. I gave him the first and second rounds. I gave Rodriguez the third round. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't call it a robbery. One of the things that I found most interesting from the course I took was McDonald saying that Judges disagreeing on a round score or even an overall split decision in a fight isn't necessarily an indication that anyone made a mistake because they have three judges sitting at three triangle points for different perspectives uh, of the cage for a reason. You know, because based on your distance and your direction from the action at any given moment, you're going to ascribe a different level of impact to the same techniques. You know, if, if you're sitting at an angle that you see the back of the fighter who's getting hit, for example, and all you see is a head snap back, whereas the judge sitting in front of them can see the guy's face and see his eyes roll up in his head, you're going to ascribe different levels of impact to that strike. You know, if you see, if you're a judge and you see a fighter in front of you cranking on uh, a knee bar, but you can see that the knee isn't past the, the angle and there's no real threat to the guy's you know knee joints, 
you're going to score that differently than the guy sitting across the case that just sees two guys struggling and straining, you know, with one guy in a knee bar. So I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, I saw this fight for Lee, you know, two rounds to one. Why did you score for Lee? I thought Rodriguez was just missing a lot. It's not as though either uh, either fighter had the other in a whole lot of danger. And the hardest rounds to score are ones where neither guy gets hurt very badly. Because you can't just be CompuBox and count the strikes and be like, well, he landed 32 strikes and he landed 28, so fighter A wins. Because not all significant strikes are equally significant, obviously. But damage trumps everything. And that's not just opening up cuts on the guy or making his face swell up or whatever, but just, you know, impact. Like, how hard did the strike seem? How how badly did it make the other fighter react? By that standard, I thought Lee's punches in the first two rounds, he just, he landed more heavier strikes than Rodriguez did. And if the fight primarily takes place on the feet, as this one did, then that trumps everything else. You know, striking comes first, then grappling, then aggression and cage control. So, you know, things like, well, fighter A was marching forward the whole time and fighter B was, you know, was backing up. It's completely irrelevant unless the damage they did was exactly equal. And that that wasn't in question here. I, th- I thought Lee landed more strikes and more of the strikes that actually affected Rodriguez. They were close rounds, but I thought first two rounds were pretty clear-cut rounds for Lee. One thing I did think about was if there was perhaps an unconscious size bias, because if you look at them, visibly, Daniel Rodriguez was the bigger man and Lee was the smaller man. So I wonder if they thought whatever the bigger man did must have been doing more damage, which we'll never know. We'll we'll never know. And I can't even remember, can't even remember who the judges uh, were in that fight. But that's certainly possible. I I can see myself falling into that kind of uh, fallacy. Also, you know, Lee had a good number of uh, kicks, you know, and like low kicks just have less visual impact than even like a glancing punch upstairs sometimes. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of ways that I could see somebody scoring those rounds for Rodriguez, even if I, I think that's the wrong decision. Yeah, so not not an outright robbery in in my mind but yeah i definitely didn't agree with it and i looked i think i looked at the scores on mmadecisions.com and like the media scores were like 17 scored it for lee and two for rodriguez so uh you know a lot of colleagues seem to agree with this now even though lee lost he really impressed me not just with how sharp he looks outside of the cage oh. but how sharp he looked in the cage even diaz complimented lee on his suit for the press conference and how he got the worst deal, how he got the worst end of the deal on this card. Lee has great power, accuracy, along with versatile striking. But he showed that he has a tendency to coast when he thinks he's winning. And even though I scored it for Lee as well, I think not coasting will just really stamp it even more for him in future fights. And I think another thing you can learn from this fight is even though both were working from opposite stances, you can still work behind the jab. I think we often see in MMA when they're in an open stance where one is orthodox and one is southpaw, neither one wants to throw a jab. But here you saw two good strikers showing, hey, you could still work the jab even if we're not in the same stance. 
So I think both fighters should walk away looking good from this fight. And I hope this doesn't hurt Lee's stock too much. I completely agree. Uh, they, they both use the jab quite a bit and will actually use the clean jab it, because a lot of times when they even try, y- you end up with more of just the constant like hand fight, sword fight, you know, with that, w- with that uh, outside hand. And, but no, like the, both of them landed jabs on each other and were effective at various times. I don't think this is going to hurt Lee at all. I think he came out of this uh, smelling pretty good because everyone seemed to come to the same conclusion that we have. I, I tweeted out on Fight Night that he did more than any other single fighter to save this card. You know, he fought up in weight again in a harder matchup against a less well-known opponent, a, a, an opponent of lesser name value further down the card, didn't get to flex his incredible suit game. Uh, <laughs> but you know, he came out of it and the crowd loved him by the end of it. And that's saying something, you know, for a a Chinese fighter that speaks little to no English to like just win over American crowds like he he tends to do. That's an accomplishment. And it's part his longevity. It's part just his naturally kind of charming and exuberant personality. And I think it's part what an intelligent and thoughtful guy he is, even through a translator. He just, you know, his takes on what's going on with his own career and his fights just seem right on. And I think, you know, fans do gravitate to that, giving given enough time and exposure. And to flesh out that idea a little bit more about what he had on the line, Lee was ranked. Daniel Rodriguez was not ranked. So he gained nothing from this fight. But I think because of his performance and what he was willing to do, hopefully there is a lot of charitable feelings around him now. Yes, and I think that counts on on all levels. The UFC, whatever criticisms I may have of their personnel and booking decisions sometimes, are generally very forgiving of fighters who fight you know on short notice or outside their weight class. Like I I don't think this would have hurt Lee's standing with the company at all, even if he'd just gotten knocked out in the first round or something. But here, where he fought a, a really good fight and arguably won. I don't think his stock is hurt at all. And he has just, you know, a little bit of company goodwill in his back pocket for whatever that's worth. Somebody who else fought on this card, not high up on the card, but somebody to watch out for was Chalton Almeida. As a prospect, what are your thoughts on him? Oh, I have to tap the brakes a little bit because I want to gush about the guy. So many things on this card changed that my partner Keith Schillen and I recorded a last-minute addendum preview for UFC 279. <laughs> normally, normally we, we record them 10 days out so that they can go up. I can do the post-production and they go up overnight like so that they're out Monday morning of fight week. But so many things changed on this card that we got together Friday night and just talked about the top three fights on the card and then talked about Almeida versus Turkali just because that had been added as well. Uh, since we recorded the preview, and we don't normally do that for for undercard fights, but you know, I said that Almeida versus Turkali was a young grappling specialist against an older, bigger one who had serious physical horsepower on his side, like it would have looked if Jacare and Damian Maya had ever fought in MMA during their primes. Like, yeah, they're both great grapplers, but the other guy has a ton of physical tools that are going to help him in, in MMA more than they would have in grappling, and. 
that was the case. I mean, he threw Turkali all over the place. You can make the argument that as bad as the Shamaya versus Holland fight was, Almeida over Turkali was like the biggest case of one man just physically ragdolling the other all over the place. Yeah. Almeida, he's got all the tools. He's obviously an outstanding grappler. He is, well, I mean, kind of like early Jacare, a developing striker that still got some holes in his game, but has just natural speed and power that already serve him well. He's 31, which in some weight classes would give you pause, but whether he decides he wants to fight at light heavyweight or heavyweight, and I would certainly counsel him to go to heavyweight, 31 is nothing. He's probably not even in his prime yet if he's a heavyweight and probably has another eight or 10 years that, that he could keep fighting at a high level. I just need to see what it looks like when he runs into some actual competition with a pulse. And that's not meant as a, a dig at any of his opponents so far, but Danilo Marquez was kind of like Tricali, a a grappler who just didn't have the same physical tools. Parker Porter is kind of a marginal heavyweight. I want to see Almeida against either a good size light heavyweight or a borderline ranked heavyweight, like a guy kind of hanging around the bottom of the top 15. I think he's earned that by running over his first three opponents in the first round. And at 31, like I said, he's not old, but there's no reason to dink around and make this guy wait another year to start seeing ranked fighters. I hope he stays at heavyweight. I want to see him against a, a ranked or near ranked guy in his next fight and kind of see how it goes. I'm very excited for him. What did you think about Norma Dumont fighting a 1-0 and MMA fighter in Danielle Wolf? I think that is more than anything else an indictment of the women's featherweight division. There is just literally nothing there. If Amanda Nunes uh, retires as champ, I think it's feasible the UFC could shutter the division. Uh, there's There's just literally nothing there, and it's mostly because Nobody wants to fight there. I've I've made the argument for two or three years now that any UFC bantamweight, one, obviously, could move up to featherweight, win one fight, and challenge Amanda Nunes for the featherweight title in her next fight. And any any woman in could do that. In fact, the UFC, you know, put on a season of the ultimate fighter to come up with featherweight challengers for Amanda Nunes and all the best fighters from that season promptly dropped to Bantamweight or tried to, you know, Macy Chasson did. Who else was on that one? Uh, Pani Kianzad, like all Bayamalecki. They all just immediately tried to drop back down to 135 with varying degrees of uh, success. And it's absurd because they're, they're milling around at 135 and, you know, calling for, for title shots against Nunes when any of them could have one at 145 if they wanted it. The division is wide open. So wide open, it barely exists. So wide open that a 1-0 and woman, a MMA neophyte at age 39, was fighting in an arguable title eliminator. I mean, that's the kind of thing we haven't seen at the UFC level since the 90s. I think one way to solve this is invest in this division, not just by having the ultimate fighter, but give a pay bump then. Basically be like, we're building out this division. So because we are building out this division, we're willing to pay people more for this division, right? This is not even socialism. This is things that capitalism does, right? Incentivizes things, <laughs> right? When you have a job nobody wants to take, 
in a company, people tend to raise the wage for that specific job. So this seems like one of those things where they should do the same thing, raise the pay. And I remember, I can't remember which fighter it was, but they said the reason why they were dropping down in weight is because they get paid the same when they fight at bantamweight, except there's more fights at bantamweight. So in a year, they're going to make more money in bantamweight than they will at 145. Then the financial incentives are already clear. You are doing this not just because you can't make 145 or fight there, but because it makes more lucrative sense to fight at 135. Then to make up for that, if you have less fighters, pay them more so that they could survive on having one or two fights a year and then build out that division that way. And then if you pay more, you'll attract more people. And I think another long-term thing was they built the division just for Cyborg and they didn't really build it out. And then once she left, they kind of started shuttering it anyway. Then they kind of kept it alive because of Nunes, but they didn't really invest in it anyway, which is like what happened at 125 for men's for a long time as well. And then we saw what that did to Demetrius Johnson. So I think it's, Thinness in the division, but I think it's a thinness in the division because of a lack of resources. And by resources, I mean money. They need to just inject more money into this thing. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. The next UFC card is Corey Sandhagen versus Yadong Song. Are you looking forward to this card? Oh my goodness, yes. And it is rare that you'll hear this kind of enthusiasm in my voice (laughs) over a 15-fight card because normally that means a long day of work for me. And... uh, (laughs) I, I get paid the same whether I'm covering a nine fight card or fifteen. But as as the you know kind of catch all fight night cards go, the ones where it's you know it's leftovers night or it's you know time to go to like the you know the the Chinese buffet, uh, fifteen fight card. This one has got good stuff pretty much top to bottom. The headliner is as good as you can ask of a free fight night card in this era. It is a high-level matchup between two ranked fighters that promises to be an absolute banger. You gotta love that. And then the rest of the main card is full of either, like, really exciting fighters that need a little bit of redemption, like Giga Chikadze, really exciting fighters who seem to have come out of nowhere in spite of having been around forever, like Chidi and Jokowani. Yeah, and then just even all the way down the card, there are some pretty lopsided matchups, but hey, you know, at least we get to see someone get beat up real bad. So in the main event, is there a fighter you favor? <sighs> I've been leaning slightly towards Sandhagen, but speaking again, as someone who does previews for every single UFC card, this is one of the hardest main events to pick I can remember this year. Just, you know, uh, Song has been improving so much from fight to fight. He's still so young. Uh, you know, he seems to have found the perfect camp for him. Whereas Sanhagen, yeah, he's been on a rough stretch of late, but he's lost to like three of probably the four best Bantamweights in the world. Like he might be the fifth or sixth best Bantamweight in the world right now and just has come up against his own personal ceiling and may still turn out to be way too much for Song. 
Like, I, you know, I, I have no idea what it's going to look like when we get in there, but I expect that he's going to win a, a really exciting, mostly striking-based battle. Are there any sleeper fights you're looking forward to on this card? Well, I mean, I think Joseph Pfeiffer is likely to literally put Alan Amadovsky to sleep. Uh, along with his, his UFC dreams, sadly. Uh, I'm excited for Trevin Giles versus Lewis Cosey. Uh, love Trevin Giles. You know, I'm I'm a Houston guy. He's a Houston guy. Uh, you know, I, I love him, even though he's a cop. There, I'll, I'll say that for, for our, our Southpaw <laughs> listeners. Um, <laughs> and he's a guy that, on talent, he's as physically skilled and well-rounded as a guy as you'll find at welterweight or middleweight. He's a top 10 guy on talent who just has inexplicable mental lapses from fight to fight and just loses a lot of fights that he was winning right up until he wasn't. And he's going up against Kosi, a guy that is definitely looking for a measure of redemption. He went 7-0, fought his way to the UFC through the Contender Series, just absolutely steamrolling everybody in front of him. And then, kind of like a very reduced version of what you were saying about Hamzat Shemaev, he it just all fell apart when he ran into someone that his furious pace and physicality couldn't overwhelm in in three minutes. So we get to see what it looks like now after a year to go back to the drawing board, retool his game, retool his approach, maybe retool his physique. I'm interested to see what he looks like this week. So two welterweights that have a ton of talent and definitely need this win sounds like an exciting fight to me. Actually, there's a lot of good fights even in like the earlier part of the prelims that I'm looking forward to. By good meaning, I feel like they're meaningful or they're young people or they're fighters that I've been interested in and I want to see them show me something more. Like Maria Agapova versus Jillian Robertson. I think that's going to be interesting. Denise Gomez, Loma, Luke Boonmi. Aspen Ladd versus Sarah McMahon, just because it's like, do or die for both fighters. So from a narrative perspective, for what happens to both of them in their career perspective, it's more interesting in that way. I don't think it'll be an exciting fight, but I think it's a meaningful fight for both fighters. I think it'll be one of those fights where whoever wins will probably be seen crying. I wholeheartedly agree there. Obviously, because it's an Aspen Lad fight, half the suspense will be on Friday. You know, if we have any UFC 279-like moments, it's going to be Aspen Lad. does she need the hoop? Is she shaking and about to faint on the scale? Is she literally fainting when she steps off the scale? Does she make weight? So there's plenty of that suspense. And if she makes it, then the question is, is that version of Aspen Lad enough to get past 41-year-old Sarah McMahon, who, you know, so improbably is still a tough out at you know, at this stage of her career. No, I, I agree. That's a really interesting one. Uh, I like that you mentioned Agapova versus Robinson. Agapova has that same kind of Lewis Cosey thing where she's run into problems when she started running into fighters that she couldn't just blow through with her strength and, and athleticism and, and aggression. And Jillian Robertson as kind of a tough survivor who is kind of used to being out-wrestled and bullied and still finding a way to win is a perfect test there. I, I like that one a lot. For, dude, Tony Gravely and Javid Basharat, if that really does end up being the second fight out of the gate, those are two guys that might be top 10 Bantamweights in a year or two. Like, yeah, just good stuff up and down this card. And going back to Aspen Land and Sarah McMahon, they both seem like fighters who should be at featherweight. And I think featherweight is also good for fighters like Sarah McMahon, where they're already big for a Bantamweight. So kind of like for men's divisions, 
as you age and it gets harder to weight cut, then you have that division right above you. So I think it's also good for some of the bigger women's bantamweights to also have that where they could extend their career. They're like, okay, I don't have to keep going to the meat grinder of 135. I could go move up to 145 and not have such a hard weight cut. So I think that's another reason to keep 145. And Aspen Lad can barely make 135. So I don't know what the insistence on her fighting at 135 is. And this is why I keep going back to there must be some perverse incentives. Like they're offering more fights for her probably at 135. So I'm not exactly sure, but she should definitely be fighting at featherweight for her own health. And in in Lad's case, the hand may be forced even, you know, not by the UFC because she is Californian and her last time fighting in California, the CSAC told her, like, we're not going to sanction you to fight at 135 anymore because they weigh fighters on the way into the cage. And not only had she been trembling and twitching on the scale, but she walked into the cage well over the fight. Like she had gained much more than the allowed percentage of her body weight in in rehydrating. So yeah, Andy Foster and CSAC said, you're, we're not going to sanction you at Bantamweight again. And for the UFC, they, they can't just indefinitely keep avoiding a major state that won't sanction one of their fighters to fight at a certain weight class. Like th- that's a bad enough look that I, I don't think they'll do it indefinitely. If she misses weight here, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we never see her at Bantamweight again. And kind of like you, I like to give shine to some of the lesser known fighters, the prelim fighters, or some of the fighters on the main card who are less famous. I feel like, you know, somebody who's like a fan of minor league baseball or like a fan of working class fighters, you know, the ones who are just the ones everybody else ignores. So to talk about a few more fights, uh, Damon Jackson versus Pat Sabatini, I think is a good fight. Anthony Hernandez versus Mark Andre Berrialt is also good on the main card. Andre Feely versus Bill Algio. And some of the other fights that you mentioned. So this is a card where it's like for the hardcores, right? It's not the famous names. Even the main event isn't like the famous of the famous names. But if you are a hardcore, 90% of this card you're interested in and 90% of this card actually matters as far as divisional rankings. Yes, absolutely. Uh, If you're a hardcore fan... Almost every fight on this card, you either love the fight or you're at least really intrigued by one of the fighters and want to see how they do. All right, Ben. Sort of like UFC 279, you saved the day by agreeing to come on this episode at the last <laughs> minute. So thank you for being on the show. Hey, it's, it's been my pleasure. I would do it anytime. Can you tell us what you're working on and where people can find you? Sure. Uh, you can find all of my work at SureDog.com. I'm senior editor there. You'll see, I, yeah, I have a good number of bylines. I do, as I've mentioned, several podcasts there. You can find me on Twitter, just at Benjamin Duffy, where it's mostly fight stuff, but you know, you'll probably occasionally get pictures of my food or you know, takes on on political stuff. And that's about it. What I'm working on is just the usual grind. The Sure Dog preview for UFC Fight Night, San Hagen versus Song, will be up you know, Monday of fight week. So that's me talking all up and down the card. And just to elaborate a little bit more for listeners, when you preview a card for the podcast, you cover every single fight, even from the early prelims. So it's not one of those preview podcasts you listen to where they just cover a couple of the fights or just the main card. It's like if a fight card has 21 fights, you're gonna cover 
every one of those fights, even like a fighter, you know, who you may never see enter the main card. You probably already know them and you're going to be talking about them. Absolutely. I mean, I, I won't say that we're the best preview. That's a matter of taste, but we're absolutely the most in-depth one. This Sanhagen versus Song card, it's 15 fights. And my co-host Keith and I speak for at least eight or nine minutes on every single fight. We just start from the first one, which is Loma Lagumi versus Denise Gomez, and go all the way up to the main event. Uh, Keith is more the X's and O's analyst. I, you know, I dabble, but mostly I'm the host. I set it up, tell you how the fighters got here, what the stakes are, what they've been doing. If they're new to the UFC, I tell you kind of what they've been doing recently, how they looked in their last couple of fights. Then we give picks and predictions for every fight. We're not a betting podcast, but we are pretty frank about when we think lines are way off or we think there's value somewhere. But yeah, I, I mean, each of them is two and a half to three hours. They are timestamped. So if you don't care about those <laughs> those early fights, I, that's okay. And you can skip right to the ones you do care about. But yeah, it's it's definitely a very deep dive. I was trying to tell a friend about somebody like Darian Weeks, who just fought, right? And I was saying like, He's fought three times in the UFC. He's lost all three. He'll probably get cut. Why do I know him? And that's the thing about hardcore is you know about these fighters. Nobody else cares about they're going to come and go without a single victory. But it's like somebody has to watch them, right? Somebody has to care about them. Yep. And you know what? And, and if he goes back to LFA, wins three more fights and comes back for another try at the UFC, we'll be the guys that, hey, I know all about him already. That's how you become the, <laughs> like, the smartest guy at the bar is by, <laughs> is by watching these things. And you never know, because guess what? Like one last little note on UFC 279, Julian Arosa. I was going to bring up Julian Arosa. <laughs> is now five and one in the UFC on his most recent uh, on his most recent visit. He's been in the UFC three times. And he's the first fighter, as far as I'm aware, to complete the trifecta. He joined the UFC through Tough. He joined it through Dana White's Contender Series. He joined it finally as a COVID-era late replacement. And it, the third time was the charm. So you never know when paying attention to that low-level prelim fighter who gets knocked out will serve you well later on. Because now I know all the hell about Julian Arosa. <laughs> and what's cool about it is now you have this like depth of knowledge of his progress. You remember how bad he was oh, when yeah. he first got there. <laughs> and then you're like, he did it. You know how some fighters just get really good really quickly? He wasn't like that. He just like primordial ooze just crawled his way <laughs> inch by inch to getting better and better. And I was like tripping out. I was like, is that Julian Arosa? I'm like, this is how he looks now. He looked great. And he was beating somebody who was a prospect. Yep. So that's one of the joys of being a hardcore that nobody will appreciate except you as a hardcore but you're like hey i got to see this storyline unfold and now if he is ever ufc featherweight champ his biopic will be called julian arosa oozing to greatness thanks to you <laughs> yeah and we got a little bit of that not to that extreme but we got to see a little bit of that with charles Oliveira as well well sure he was always going to be the exciting guy incredible grappler little bit of a head case who'd never string together enough wins to become a contender and then all of a sudden we're like oh man he's won six or seven in a row and he is a contender but certainly tony ferguson is just gonna you know break him like tony ferguson breaks everybody right and just each time i thought well this guy is gonna be the one that turns him back into old de bronx he was killing him yeah transformation if you like this episode and you like what we do support us on patreon 
We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. There's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory, believe it or not. You can also find Liberation Martial Arts online on our Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.